Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. Expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for January 8th, 2018. On today's show, we're going to be diving into a bunch of news, including the 2018 Golden Globe winners, Bloodshot movie casting, a Justice League extended cut, Chris Hemsworth's thoughts on Quentin Tarantino's Star Trek film, and the possibility of a third Blade Runner movie. And at the water cooler, we'll be chatting about the Void, Star Wars, Secrets of the Empire VR experience, uh, Pillars of the Earth, and Jacob will be talking about uh, video games and Black Mirror. Uh, joining me on today's podcast is Huay Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Slash Home Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. How's it going, guys? Uh, it has been a weekend, for sure. Um, <laughs> neither of us, uh, or Jacob and I, have not seen the Golden Globes. Uh, HT covered it for the site. Uh, we were both busy. We'll, we'll talk about that in a bit, but HT, you're going to have to tell us all about it. Um, but uh, I'll tell you what I did over the weekend. Um, and that was I traveled down to Anaheim, California to downtown Disneyland, which is the area, the shopping area outside of Disneyland to experience the Void's uh, Star Wars Secrets of the Empire VR experience. And uh, have either of you done VR before? I have with video games, but nothing to the, nothing to the extent that this thing is. How about you, HD? I've never experienced it. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, uh, traditional VR, you put on a headset and you're sitting down or maybe you're like standing up in like, uh, you know, a five foot by four, five foot area walking around. Um, it's it and you have controllers in your hands and um, I don't know. It, it, it's a very different experience than this. What the void is doing is they're doing what I think is called room scale VR. And what that is, is it's a complete environment uh you uh the first one they did of this was of ghostbusters and uh th this is the second i think big release of theirs uh and basically what happens is you get strapped in uh the, you have this vest on that like has tactical feedback uh on your back is like the computer uh you know the the headset goes on on your head um 
So you aren't tethered to anything. Usually in VR, you're, you have to be connected to a computer of some kind, but the, the computer's on your back in this. And uh, the storyline is, I'm going to try to be as spoiler-free as possible in case anybody wants to experience this. Right now, I think it's only in Disney World and Disneyland, um, but I think they're opening up other locations. And I think the plan is for the Void VR to kind of be like a movie theater where they'll introduce new experiences over time. And it's not just going to be the Star Wars, you know, thing. But um, the storyline is set. It's a prequel to Rogue One. You get a briefing from Cassian. Uh, He uh, reprises his role, as does uh, Alan Tudyk reprises K2SO in this. And um, you get a briefing, and you're basically told that the Empire has um, some kind of weapon that is, you know, of great importance for us to recover. We don't know anything about it, but basically we're going on a mission. Uh, we, we are stormtrooper undercover as stormtroopers, as rebels typically are. And uh, we're going to a secret Imperial base on Mustafar, uh, which is, as you saw in Rogue One, Darth Vader's um, secret lair. Uh, which should hint at a confrontation you might have on that planet. Um, and uh, on that lava planet, you are basically you, you are inf- trying to infiltrate that base and recover that weapon, whatever it is. Um, okay, so the cool thing about this is, well, first of all, I did this with two other friends. You can do it up to four friends. And you see the other people in the world. So, like, we each picked, like, our own Stormtrooper outfit. So, like, I had a green stat sash. And, like, they had other colors. And, you know, I could see them next to me. I, I wasn't wearing anything on my hands. I could high-five them. Uh, the, the hand tracking was, like, one for one almost. Um, the cool thing is, like, you were going through, like, uh, rooms and stuff, and you can feel the walls because the walls are actually there. You are like pulling switches that are on the wall, and like it's not like in the video game. I mean, it is in the video game, but you are actually touching stuff like tactical stuff on the walls and like pushing buttons. And uh, one point, you know, obviously, uh, you need weapons, and you come into a room that has like some blasters, and you actually go over to you know the wall and pull the blaster off the wall and you have the blaster in your hand. And now, you know, for the rest of the experience, you, you are with your, your stormtrooper blaster, which is uh, cool. And that has tactical feedback. You, you get shot, you feel it. And I actually, it was like the first time I've ever played like a game, a video game and felt like I was in danger. If that makes any sense, because like I was, you know, just getting fired at by other stormtroopers, And, uh, you know, you're on Mustafar, which is the lava planet. And, um, you feel the heat of the lava. You, uh, it, it was so cool of an experience. I, I think it was probably a 15 minute experience, like maybe a 10 minute intro. Uh, cost $35. I'm not sure if it's worth $35 because if you have a group of four, that's, you know, what, pretty expensive, right? Like that's more than the cost of a theme park ticket, uh, for one person. But, uh, but it was it was really cool. This still seems like first gen. Like the, the, seeing this and experiencing this is like uh, I can I can see the promise of this technology and where it's going to go. Like it was more immersive than any theme park experience I've ever encountered. It was like I felt for the first time ever. I really felt like I was in 
the world of Star Wars, even more so than like, you know, Star Tours or something like that. Like this felt like you were in it. Uh, it was really cool. I would recommend anybody who wants to experience this, go check it out. Uh, and uh, I'm sure if you search online for Star Wars Secrets of the Empire, uh, the void, you could find lo- locations. I think they're opening other locations, but right now I think it's pretty minimal. I think there's only a couple. Uh, yeah. But uh, HT, what have you been up to this weekend? So I picked up um, The Pillars of the Earth, which is strange to say because it came out in 1989, but uh, I've been reading it and it came highly recommended by both of my parents. Uh, so it's a historical fiction set in the 12th century about the this intergenerational building of uh, a cathedral, a Gothic cathedral in um, England. And it's a really it's actually quite, it's a dense book, but I am enjoying it a lot. And I recently found out that it was made into a BBC miniseries. Oh, I'm sorry, a Stars miniseries in 2010 starring a young Haley Atwell and young Eddie Redmayne. So I'm excited to finish reading it and perhaps get onto that miniseries and uh, read the new sequel, I think, that came out just this year as well. But yeah, I'm. it's my first book of the year. I'm enjoying it so far. It's about a thousand pages long, but... <laughs> I, I like it a lot. I like, and I also, I have the hard copy because I don't like reading books on Kindles or anything. So I've been lugging like this giant book around with me. I brought it yesterday <laughs> to brunch because I thought maybe I would read it on the bus there. But instead, I was just bringing this really heavy book around with me around DC. Um, the plot synopsis doesn't sound appealing to me. What what about this book is so great? I, I mean, I know I've heard of this book. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's a really great uh I guess, examination of these the lives of these people who sort of surround the cathedral that's being built. And it's it's a drama that has to do with like political intrigue and the church and uh, sort of the various wars that rage during this uh, sort of feudal time in England. So it has a lot of that uh, really interesting, interesting um plot dynamics as well as just like it focuses very closely on the characters so you get to know the characters really well of that of like the families of the of the builder the priest um the monks and everything like that so it's it's quite interesting it's just um it's a lot of a lot to juggle because it's just so many characters but i'm enjoying it so far strangely i haven't read this book but i have played the board game there is a popular board game based on pillars of the earth uh which is uh has a great tactical element of like you're actually building this cathedral in the middle of the map throughout the game uh which is very cool it's actually a, a a i think it's a beloved game it's um a lot of people like it uh yeah i was vaguely familiar with the title and kind of picked up the book on a whim and did not realize it had sort of saturated the rest of pop culture so quickly yeah. Uh, Jacob, what have you been up to? Well, I've been doing two things. I've been, first of all, it's a game called Stellaris that I've had downloaded on my computer for about a year and a half now, and I've been scared of it. <laughs> I've been scared to start <laughs> it up. It is a grand strategy game by a company called Paradox, and they're famous for making games that are so detailed and complex that you are very much simulating your own world in a, in a, in a, in a grand strategy format. I try, I try to explain what that means. Before, they've made a lot of his history games, historical games, games about conflict in Europe and in the Middle Ages. Um, Solaris is set in space. You either pick a pre-designed species, humans, or any number of aliens, or you design your own from scratch. 
I design my own from scratch. And that process takes about a half hour because it's questions like not only what do you look like, what kind of climate does your species live on, but also here are a number of pointing allocate toward um, cultural tendencies, toward government ideals. And you start like plugging in all these different questions and answers about what your people believe in and what they find important. And eventually I end up developing a military dictatorship of little fox people. And then I was in space. And over the course of centuries of in-game time, I was mining, exploring, getting in wars, managing government, building power plants on individual colonies. And this game is intense. It, it, is, it takes the idea of, of a space opera and says, okay, but what goes on when you're not getting in fights? How do the people react? Do you build propaganda stations to make them like you? What happens when there's a coup against your uh, mil military leaders if you are a military dictatorship? Um, what happens when you run out of food and you need to go establish a colony on a planet that has more food? Yet that doesn't just happen. You have to build the colony ship, which takes months of in-game time, and send it to that planet and have a colony established and distribute your workers. And then while, then while this is happening, someone declares war on you. You have food to be able to get more stuff built. And it's if you've played lots of command uh, command strategy games like Age of Empires or Command and Conquer or even StarCraft, you kind of get the basic idea of what this is like. But the amount of detail is daunting. And I played for about three hours, and I walked away kind of shell-shocked. <laughs> I don't think I understand the game yet. Yeah, I, but I feel like it's my new my, my new best frenemy. I, I want to learn it. I want to know everything about it. But it is, how, man, how, it, it how, is something else. How abstracted are things in this game? Uh, not at all. It, you're looking at it's very nice looking game. You're you're looking at top down view of the galaxy. You can scroll in and out to do get as close as possible as the the see your ships flying through the galaxy or scroll all the way out. There are various different tabs that will show things that you click on your construction yards orbiting your home planet, and there are different queues where you can say, oh, I want you to build some battleships here, some colon, colony ships here, and you watch those ships eventually get built and you know, arrive outside of your uh, space station. It's I mean, there's a lot of and a lot of graphs uh, that you can pull up, but you can ultimately close them all. And you're looking at a very nice-looking game. It's set entirely in space and has different planets. Of different, uh, like you go to go into a different solar system, and there's different uh, planets, different um, uh, makeups. Like there's you know, gas giants or desert planets or ice planets, suns of different colors, asteroid fields. It's incredibly detailed, and the fact that you can interact with everything uh, is is what makes it both appealing and terrifying. See, I've always wanted to play a civilization game, but all of them that I've seen kind of feel like it's, you know, it all relies on military, and I, I don't really want to get into that. You know, I, I just want to build. You know, I, I liked, you know, playing The Sims and making a house. <laughs> <laughs> well, this this could be for you because when you when you build up your initial civilization, you can choose not to lead in the military. I, I, I did that, but you can say, like, we are spiritualists who believe in peace and harmony. And you can ally yourself with, with people around you and just try to stay as... Like, the, the goals in this game aren't, like, destroy everybody. They're, like, establish a foothold in the galaxy and survive. You don't have to... You can win by destruction, but you don't have to. So I feel like it, it's very much a sandbox is going to cater toward how you want to play. So you may be forced into fighting. And I've heard stories from players where um, they've... Where the game will generate massive events based on your choices. And in one game, a friend told me about... They built... AI, the, the AI slaves, and then do not build the technology to treat them well, abuse them, and then after thousands and thousands of years of in-game time, 
all the robots in the galaxy rose up and started fighting them and all the other AI players, forcing everybody to team up as they faced a AI apocalypse. And they, so it's it's just this kind of insane number of things that can happen. I mean, so you can choose to win peacefully or be a warrior uh, or hmm. something in between. Or it could, you could just be a game of you just building your stuff and colonizing plants and having a good time. But at the same time, the game may ultimately throw a cataclysm at you as a result of your own choices. So it's, it's if you're willing to do the do the deep dive and dive in, it's I think it's thirty dollars. It's not an expensive game, um, but it's. I mean, it, it's, it's PC only. It's uh, PC and Mac. Yeah, I mean, I, I have it on Steam, um, but it's it, it's worth looking into. Like, it came out in 2016. It's not it's not a brand new game, but Paradox they support their games really well. There's always new stuff coming out, new DLC, new stuff to add, lots of free stuff and stuff to pay for. So it's worth getting into. If if, if this sounds appealing, uh, it, this. This is probably something that you'll enjoy. I just don't think I have the time. Um, I barely, you know, I, I've only watched two episodes of the new season of Black Mirror, which I know you've been catching up on, and I haven't been able to get through that. Uh, I want to hear your thoughts on it, but um, I, uh, I'm i starting to get burnt out on Black Mirror, and I think it's because I'm starting to feel that uh, the cool part of Black Mirror um, is the realization of the cool concept and what the cool concept is of that episode. And then once you get that down, I'm not too invested in that story. Does that make sense? Like, uh, are, are you having any, uh, <laughs> any of that? I mean, you, you finished the first, uh, the, the last, uh, release season, right? I'm not finished yet. I'm, I'm making my way through it slowly. I'm, I'm treasuring it. <laughs> I never get to treasure TV anymore because of so, work. So, so you're you're still loving it. I'm still enjoying it. I feel like I feel like I'm having issues with some episodes. Like for example, I think Archangel is a straight up bad hour of television uh, because it feels like if somebody said, "Let's make a parody of Black Mirror. It's all of Black Mirror's bad habits put together. It'll look like Archangel. It's this alarmist, bleak, needlessly bleak uh, hour of TV that." just um has almost no personality to it. it's just pushing your head into the muck further and further and further while screaming technology is bad technology is bad and early seasons of black mirror i think did that a lot better a lot a lot more clever ways yeah whereas i think episodes like hang the dj in uss callister are these really unique special and, and even though it goes against the uh, ethos of black mirror they're more positive hours of tv and i think they're better for it they are they're more playful they're more experimental um, they're willing to, to do things that are different. So when, when Black Mirror is retreating to its old stopping grounds in this season, I'm over it. But when it's trying something new and leaning on ideas that have not been overplayed, uh, I'm still enjoying it. Yeah, I got to get to hang the DJ. I know a lot of people are saying that's uh, one of the best episodes of the season. Um, but yeah, that that is it for the water cooler. Uh, let's get to the news. Last night, the 2018 Golden Globe Awards were held. Uh, Jacob and I uh, did not watch, but HT was manning uh, the live blog for the site. Um, so HT, you're going to have to tell us what what happened. So I often watch the Golden Globes of my own volition just to enjoy the drunken shenanigans that go down. But this year was a more sober and sobering affair because of the um, the current contra- the ongoing controversy around the Weinstein effect and sexual harassment in Hollywood. Uh, a lot of the actors and actresses attended the 
Golden Globes red carpet in all black and with a Time's Up pin, which is the movement that's in association with bringing more awareness to sexual harassment and assaults in um, that's systemic in Hollywood. And I think that the the winners for the Golden Globes this year were a huge indication of how powerful that conversation has become. So the Golden Globes this year, the biggest winners were three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, which won uh, four Golden Globes, one for drama, um, best actress, best, best supporting actor, and best screenplay. Um, and then the next couple of heavy of big winners were Lady Bird as well as in TV Big Little Lies and Handmaid's Tale were huge winners as well so it's obvious that this is has become a sort of prevailing issue especially with three billboards outside Ebbing Missouri and Big Little Lies and Handmaid's Tale dealing with sexual assault and sexual harassment and um, that kind those kind of issues and uh, the ceremony itself was uh, was hosted by Seth Meyers who had a really great monologue at the beginning that dealt uh, directly with Weinstein and all of the n- names that were the man that men that were named during like this ongoing revelations of sexual misconduct. There was a really funny Willem Dafoe reaction where uh, that has been going around. That's like him being wide eyed and looking a little scared. And everyone's like, that's the reaction when your name is called and you don't know why. So <laughs> he made a lot of um, ja- Seth Meyers made a lot of jabs about Weinstein uh, and uh only one jab about Trump. So it was obvious that it was less politically motivated this year than it was than than it was about sexual harassment and assault. And um, other standout uh, moments were uh, Tanya Harding and Tommy Wiseau were guests at the Golden Globes <laughs> this year, which were kind of which was interesting um, decision from both of the movies because they're both very controversial figures or and or just sort of figures of infamy i guess you would say yeah yeah and uh, tommy was so almost grabbed the mic from james franco when uh james franco won for best actor um so that was a really interesting moment another great moment was oprah winfrey winfrey's speech when she accepted the cecile b demille award for her lifetime achievement and that was a really rousing moment that brought many to tears and have a few people calling for her to run for 2020 yeah president I did see that. I, I did watch mm-hmm. that clip online, and that almost seemed like more of a speech from a politician than it, a speech from an actress or a you know of a, a, a yeah. pop culture person. It has all the hallmarks of a presidential speech, or like a speech that leads up to someone uh, announcing their presidential campaign. So it feels it's it's has a lot of similarities to for example obama's speech when he was a senator um at the i think dnc and it that was what brought him to the map and this one feels very much very similar to that so who knows she hasn't you know said anything yet but a lot of people are already announcing for her and there was even a little bit of a kerfuffle with um nbc's twitter account that said our future president and because nbc is such a huge uh publication slash um uh, cable yeah. outlet that could be seen as an endorsement so that was a little bit um <laughs> that that yeah so we had some political controversy and um there was another great moment with uh, natalie portman uh when she was in she and ron howard were announcing the best directors and she made a jab at the fact that uh, greta gerwig and jordan peele were both snubbed for best directors and she said here are are the all-male nominees and that's something that's that she and Arthur Barbara Streisand were calling attention to because um, Barbara Streisand was the last woman 
and the only woman to win a Golden Globe for Best Director back in 1984. So with so many female directors directors this year who could have been viable for a nomination, it seems a little bit strange. So there's definitely a lot of social commentary, social issues going on with this Golden Globes, but I think it was really refreshing that so many people were speaking out about it uh, so um, so clearly, um, especially, although there is an interesting thing, thing to note that I wanted to say is that all of the um, male, the female actresses and uh, award winners made sure to talk about the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement, but none of the male winners actually mentioned either of those issues, except for Gary Oldman made a vague suggestion about it. But otherwise, everyone else just did their their uh, standards, thanking their friends, um, act, directors, etc. So that was an interesting thing to note. What, what was the biggest surprise of uh, like award wise? The biggest surprise for me was how many awards three billboards won. Um, I didn't expect it, for example, to win um, best picture drama. Uh, that was because I was expecting either Call Me By Your Name or Shape of Water, which have been the favorites uh, leading up till now. But Three Billboards kind of swept away a lot of swept a lot of this uh, ceremony. So that was a big surprise. Um, and it came away with the most wins out of all of them. Call Me By Your Name also came away with no wins at all, which was um, a big surprise as well. Timothy Chamolet did was, I think, my favorite for Best Actor, but Gary Oldman uh, won instead for Darkest Hour. So yeah, three billboards is um I was kind of expecting it to be a dark horse candidate, um, but it really came out on top in this one. I'm not sure though how much how similarly it, similarly it will play with the Oscars because this is the Hollywood Foreign Press and uh, three billboards did do really well I think at the Venice Film Festival, um, and but it has had less traction I think uh, stateside. For sure. Um... Also in the news today, uh, the Bloodshot movie is targeting Vin Diesel for the lead role. Uh, Jacob, you are our resident comic book reader. What do we know? Oh, we know it comes courtesy of The Wrap, and they're reporting that Vin Diesel is being sought to star in Bloodshot, which is one of two films that are currently being developed that are based on the comics of the Valiant universe. Uh, Valiant isn't as big of a name as DC or Marvel, of course, but they hold their own. They do, I guess for the past almost a decade now, they've, since they did a, a big relaunch, they've been releasing really good comics, really good character-driven, usually built toward older audience uh, comics. And Bloodshot is a character who reeks of 90s stupidity, who they've reinvented in a really cool way, who is a soldier who's on the verge of death, who is brought back to life using nanotechnology, which makes him this unstoppable killing machine uh, who can absorb all kinds of punishment and is really good at killing people. And he has this weird look where he has pale skin and a weird red circle on his chest. He looks very silly. But recent years have seen him become less of a character who is just an unstoppable badass and more of an unstoppable badass who is constantly soul searching and trying to deal with the fact that he's a monster and built to be a monster. And how do you, how do you protect your soul when you're uh, essentially a Frankenstein's monster created by the government to murder people? So it actually makes sense. This is a good Vin Diesel role because Vin Diesel tends to uh, be attracted to not just action heroes, but action heroes who have a sense of soul, a sense of family, a sense of camaraderie. 
I don't think he's always a successful actor, but I really admire how he have, has that Keanu Reeves quality of he looks to find characters within his action roles. Doesn't not always successful, like I said, but I I, I think that he he tries to find something that, that, that's something that's there. Like I mean, it's not an accident that Fast and Furious became all about family because that's the kind of thing that interests Vin Diesel. He wants that extra subtext. Even like in terrible films like uh, The Last Witch Hunter and Babylon AD, uh, there's still a sense of Vin Diesel having his fingerprints on there of of how do we make this more up his alley, of things that interest him. So I think this is a character that's more built for him. And Jared Leto was originally uh, being sought for this part last year. And I'm, no, I'm not a fan of Leto. I don't think he's a good fit for this part. Yeah, but Vin Diesel, the soulful, mumbling, hulking <laughs> action hero, feels like feels like a uh, a pretty solid fit. Uh, what's interesting though is that this is, like I said, there's there's two movies that they're planning here. This one in Harbinger, which is essentially Valiant Universe's X Men, and the plan is to make both those simultaneously and then have them all build up toward a big crossover movie. I don't know if it's going to happen. Uh, Sony is behind this. They're apparently going to embrace the Logan route and go R-rated. Uh, the rap says that Total Recall and RoboCop are the touchstones for the for Bloodshot, which I'm all, I'm all on board for that. And uh, being directed by Dave Wilson, who used to uh, be one of Deadpool directors Tim Miller partners at Blur Studios, where they get their start. So it's a lot of things up in the air. Uh, like Valiant's not a known name, Bloodshot's not a known name, Dave Wilson's not a proven feature director. Vin Diesel hasn't had a hit um, that wasn't a Fast and Furious movie in a long time. Hmm. I, I don't know if this will work, but I do know that if they can capture what makes these comics special for the right budget and sell it right, this could be something that I can get really excited about. Um, also in the news, over the weekend, there was a large group of fans in front of the Warner Brothers uh, studio lot uh, 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 protesting because they want the Justice League extended cut to be released, and by the by, a large group of fans, I mean thirteen. Uh, <laughs> and now there is rumors <laughs> that Warner Brothers might actually be releasing an extended cut. HT, what do we know? Uh, so who knows if this supposed extended cut will uh, satisfy the fans? But uh, according to an Amazon Germany listing of Justice League's 4K Ultra and Blu-ray digibook, um, there is going to be a 135-minute cut of Justice League. And that's 10, 15 more minutes longer than the theatrical cut of Justice League, which clocked in at exactly two hours. I'm not sure. We're not sure if this is accurate or completely confirmed yet because uh, Justice League's Blu-ray page does list the runtime as 121 minutes, which is the same length as its theatrical run. So we're not sure if this extended cut is uh, a confirmed or not. But um, this could be perhaps a compromise for the Zack Snyder fans who have been adamantly discussed uh, demanding a Zack Snyder cut of Justice League, which does not exist. Um, we would like to say again that this Zack Snyder cut that they keep demanding uh, has not actually been confirmed to be a real thing or something that has been in the process. The theatrical cut will probably be, probably be the only version that you will see, except for perhaps maybe 15 minutes longer of either deleted scenes that have been finished in post-production and cut last minute, or perhaps a flashback of some sort. But um, a Zack Snyder cut would require Warner Brothers to uh, put 
spend even more money on unfinished visual effects and post-production on an entire cut of a movie, which they would likely not want to spend after the box office disappointment that Justice League had, um, especially after this week it was recently um, beaten at the box office by Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, in uh, Jumanji's <laughs> second week of release. So I don't I don't think that Warner Brothers, if they would cave in to the 13 fans' demands, <laughs> would, <laughs> would uh, want to invest in a Justice League Zack Snyder cut. I, I will say this. I have heard that there are uh, Zack Snyder deleted scenes on the the home video release. And I, I was told it was like 10 to 15 minutes. So th- th- that running time does add up. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think they're going to release a Zack Snyder director's cut because he obviously didn't finish the film. Um, and, uh, you know, they weren't finished. Scene, you know, they didn't finish his version of the film. Uh, but it would be interesting to see him. Like, I don't know if there's enough demand to warrant the cost of it, but it'd be interesting to see, like, you know, how Richard Donner had his cut of Superman 2 to have yeah. see what Zack Snyder's vision was. I will say this much about Zack Snyder. Almost every single no, I would say every single one of his director's cuts that have been released on DVD have been uh, heads and leaps better than the theatrical cuts. Um so take that for whatever it's worth. But <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, let's move on to news. Uh, we've been talking a lot about uh, Quentin Tarantino's Star Trek movie that is in development at Paramount. I don't believe I'm saying that out loud. Um, it just doesn't seem like a thing that's ever going to happen. Chris, he- Chris Hemsworth was asked about this uh, last night at the Golden Globes. Jacob, what did he say? Well, I guess the quick piece of background for those of you who don't remember is that when Star Trek Beyond came out in 2016, they almost immediately started uh, talking about Star Trek IV. And the idea was that it would bring back George Kirk, uh, Chris Hemsworth character from the 2009 Star Trek reboot, directed by J.J. Abrams. You may remember the opening prologue scene where Chris Hemsworth, this is before Thor, it's like his, this is his first significant role where people saw Chris Hemsworth being Chris Hemsworth, which means being very handsome, charming, and wonderful. Um, and... In that scene, he dies heroically uh, so his crew can escape, including his pregnant wife, who gives birth to James T. Kirk as George Kirk dies. It's like not far away. It's a very sad and very well, well done scene. But Star Trek IV is going to bring George Kirk back somehow. It was going, whether it's by time travel or some other shenanigans, that was never quite revealed. But it was going to be a George Kirk and his son, James T. Kirk, the two, two of the Hollywood Chris's. Chris Pye and Chris Hemsworth teaming up for a sci-fi adventure. And the Star Trek Beyond underperformed. People stopped talking as much about it. There was still chatter here and there. It was still moving forward. And then Tarantino comes in with his pitch. And suddenly, no one's talking about Star Trek Four. It's all Tarantino's movie. Uh, so IGN asked Chris Hemsworth, hey, what's going on? Uh, are you involved in the new Star Trek movie? Uh, what's up with Star Trek Four? To which he responds, I don't know. It's a reminder to call J.J. Abrams and ask the same question because they haven't heard any updates on it either. So I think this is a situation where imagine you and your friends are going on a road trip. It's a really cool plan. You have a whole itinerary lined up. Lined up then <laughs> things change. You get really excited. You have a new destination. You realize, oh, no, we can no longer fit Chris in the car anymore. Who's going to call him? <laughs> and, and no one has. So I want the scenario to- you have. So please, J.J. Abrams, call Chris Hemsworth. He doesn't need our 
pity. I mean, he's Thor, and Thor made a, almost made almost a billion dollars worldwide. Chris Hemsworth is fine. He's Chris Hemsworth. But you know what? Just call him. Call Chris Hemsworth and say, hey, you're not in Tarantino's Star Trek movie. I'm sorry. And that's that's pretty much the extent of it. Um, J- Jacob, Chris Hemsworth uh, has nothing to say. JJ is too busy in another galaxy to make that call right now. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also in the news, uh, Blade Runner 3. Uh, Blade Runner 2049 did not do well at the box office, but Ridley Scott already has an idea for a third film in the Blade Runner uh, franchise. HT, is it going to happen? Well, this is nothing that has been confirmed yet either, but Ridley Scott says he already has an idea for Blade Runner 3. Blade Runner 20... I don't know what the title would be. 2059? 2069? 2059, yeah, I guess so. Um, But he says, he told Digital Spy, I hope so. I think there is another story. I've got another one ready to evolve and be developed, so there is certainly one to be done for sure. Um, I think Blade Runner 2049 does leave some room open for a sequel. Uh, but I feel like this is a case of Ridley Scott wanting to get his hands back on a franchise that he created and really loves. Um, there was a couple of stories back when Blade Runner 2049 was being filmed that Den- Denis Villeneuve had to kick uh, Ridley Scott off his set. And then recently Ridley Scott was, I wouldn't say like talking critically of Blade Runner 2049, Blade Runner 2049, but he was. Oh, uh, he said it was giving, too long. <laughs> he was giving his honest opinion, and he said it was too long, and that he would have taken out maybe half an hour. So, but he also did take responsibility for the script because he claimed to have a role in helping the writers uh, form and create that script. So, I think that was just as much sort of self criticizing as much as it was of Blade Runner 2049, which, although it was a box office disappointment, was a critical darling. So there is a possibility that Warner Brothers could okay a sequel either way. So um, we're not sure if this Blade Runner sequel will happen or if Ridley Scott will do a great job with it if he takes the helm. Uh, We know that he really loves to revive his sci-fi franchises, and it can meets either um, low or high, uh, it can be result in either low or high uh, sort of, it, it's resulted in mixed results. Mixed results. Saying. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I think it's uh, a lot of people in Hollywood, I think, uh, kind of have this belief that projects that Ridley Scott is heavily involved in developing turn out to be like his worst films and the ones that he comes on late into the development are the ones that are the classics um so i'm not sure if i want to see his blade runner 3 and i don't i'm not sure warner brothers has another you know 100 and whatever million dollars to make it (laughs) in this climate uh jacob is it gonna happen oh never ever ever if it does happen (laughs) it'll be in 30 years it'll be Denis villeneuve being the super old crotchety guy yelling at the new young director uh, and then they'll learn the same lesson in 30 years when Blade Runner 2096 bombs and say, well, another 30 years, and then we get Blade Runner 4. So that'll be the that'll be the pattern. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, I'm not sure if you've heard this story, but there's a story that Denis tells of being on the set of Blade Runner 2049 and Ridley Scott was behind him, kind of like, you know, uh, giving criticism and, you know, offering his, you know, thoughts and like behind the monitor. And he, he turns to him and says, uh, Ridley, who's your favorite filmmaker? And Ridley, I forget what who, what filmmaker he offered but he said imagine you're on the set of one of your movies directing and your favorite in that filmmakers behind you watching you and ridley <laughs> like was like okay i get it and he left 
<laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I thought that was a great story. But um, yeah, I, and that does it for the news today. Uh, HT, where can, we, where can people find more of your work online? You can find my work at slashfilm.com and I have and I'm on Twitter at htranbuoy. Where can people find more of you, Jacob? I'm on slashfilm.com every single day and I am complaining on Twitter at Jacob S. Hall. <laughs> uh, you can find me at slashfilm on, on Twitter. You can find all the stories we've talked about today on slashfilm.com and linked in the show notes. Uh, this podcast is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Uh, please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, concerns, comments to peter at slashfilm.com and leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention the email on on the air please go rate and review us on itunes help spread the word tell your friends on social media and we will see you tomorrow